can a left winger and a conservative have a respectful conversation? And quick, what are the two main reasons that we have a $15.7 trillion national debt? Ah, you will learn the answers to all that and more in under an hour of easy listening. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for July 18th, 2018. And just before we get to the program and those important answers that I know you're now hanging on the edge of your seat to hear, this podcast is brought to you, as I mention every program, by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and also promotes mass transit. It is also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. And as I remind everyone, you can also hear the podcast, if you choose to, on the Progressive Radio Network on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Of course, beyond our specific organizational sponsors, we depend on small financial sponsors like you to support the program. So please do go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and look for that link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Now, over 33 years and over 1,500 episodes, Firing Line was an American public affairs show hosted by conservative William F. Buckley, Jr., who also founded National Review and was one of the leading conservative voices back when conservatism was actually an outlier in the Republican Party and generally in public discourse. Now, you could make the argument that real conservatism today is an outlier in the Republican Party because those phonies who call themselves conservatives are, in fact, phonies if you talk to a conservative who really believes in the conservative ideology. The show's format was essentially the same from the time it started in 1966 until the last episode in 1999. Buckley would pass away, actually, in 2008, some years, obviously, after the show had stopped. Buckley would quiz his guest, actually debate his guest, which included liberals and left-wingers, people such as Noam Chomsky and Democratic Socialist leader Michael Harrington. And he also had celebrities on, like Muhammad Ali. For most years, it was shown on PBS, so it never reached a mass audience in the sense of tens of millions of people or large audiences. Now the lights are being turned back on at Firing Line, and it's getting a new life with a new host, Margaret Hoover. Over the past, I guess, almost three years, Margaret and I have spent many an hour together, sometimes late into the night, as panelists on CNN, she being billed as a conservative commentator, and I was being billed as a, depending on what period of time it was, Bernie Sanders supporter or Democratic strategist. Now, here are the several things I'll say about Margaret. As you may guess, if you're a history buff from her last name, she's got some political family history. Her great-grandfather was, in fact, Herbert Hoover, the 31st president of the United States. And in what impressed me about Margaret from the very first day that I met her 
is her real commitment and devotion to continue to promote and keep alive the legacy of her great-grandfather, not simply as a talking point or a self-promotional gambit on her part, but because she really does, I think, cherish that legacy. And no matter what your political beliefs, you have to admire that, and I certainly do. And on top of that, she's really smart. We don't agree on much in terms of policy, though that's overstating it a bit because she, for example, is not a climate change denier, like most of her Republican Party colleagues, and she's been one of the most visible advocates in favor of LGBT rights in the Republican Party, and that certainly is a lonely place to be in the Republican Party in these days. And God knows the cable news format isn't the place for intellectual in-depth debate when we've been asked to wear our partisan armor. But beyond that, the kind of conversations she and I have had, mostly sort of one-on-one, are respectful, interesting, and usually pretty fun. I consider her a friend who I don't usually agree with on, well, actually lots of things, but she's a great human being. As you'll hear a bit now, because I invited Margaret on the podcast to talk about the new firing line and also conservatism and the Republican Party. And so one of the things that obviously first occurs to me, Margaret, is that um, most of my listeners are, for lack of a better term, progressive or on the left wing of the scale, maybe not all of them. And so tell us why someone like that, a progressive, would be interested in listening to your show, Firing Line, which, number one, you're an out front avowed conservative, but what do you hope to bring to this that would appeal to listeners like mine? Well, I think, Jonathan, I am willing to go out on a limb here because I know you and I know that you are, um, you know, you know, you're a proud progressive, but you're a thoughtful and very smart and interested progressive, a, a progressive and a person who is interested in being discerning about the world around them. You have a view of it, but you're also willing to have your assumptions questioned and willing to engage with people who to whom you can question, with whom you can question or engage in exchange of ideas. And that is the tradition of firing line. I mean, Buckley was a conservative at a time when nobody was a conservative. I mean, conservatives were laughed at. There was, um, actually, there was no intellectual tradition uh, attached to the modern American conservative movement. There had been one or two um, people in the academy who had begun to codify and espouse and write ideas um, that, that began to, you know, if you squinted, look like the beginning of a conservative movement. But by the way, I mean, the conservative movement is and always has been, but especially at the time that Buckley began Firing Line and National Review, it was, uh, as one of his, the biographers of the conservative movement said, it was not univocal. It was a wide river with many tributaries. And the idea is that there were coalitions and there were different groups of people and they all had different views and they sort of codified around the political movement and 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 there was a bit of coherence and intellectual heft that was that was part of that early movement and and it it and Buckley who was a trained debater from university um, he he really didn't do firing line well unless it had an audience because he responded so well to performance um, it it was premised on the exchange of ideas and so if you want to uh, have a series of ideas sharpened and really kicked around and strengthened, you by definition, as you do in your own life, and I would imagine your listeners do, to the extent that they listen to you because you're this way, you know, you're willing to have your assumptions questioned 
in order to sharpen your own arguments. And you're willing to be intellectually honest when you come to the table and work through um, you know, what you think the best policy outcomes are and the best ideas are uh, for you know, organizing society and for fixing you know, societal ills. And so that's, um, if, you, if you are a thoughtful person, you know, there are plenty of people who turn on television or turn on radio or go to their podcasts for confirmation bias. And, you know, a little of that is okay. I'm, I'm not against that. Some people really like that and thrive on it. But um, that only takes you so far. If you want to really engage in exchange and um, you know, really, a res- it's the tradition of a respectful contest of ideas. Um, that's why you turn into Firing Line. And by the way, Firing Line doesn't only have, you know, conservatives or center-right or centrist people on or liberals on. I mean, we had just this week Alexander Ocasio-Cortez was on last week, Jeff Merkley, you know, a progressive darling in the Senate, who supported was the only U.S. senator to endorse Bernie Sanders, was my guest this week. So we engage across the, as you know well, and you know, I know you know him well and you like him, we just, we just visited about that. The idea is, is to engage ideas across the spectrum in order to um, make everybody smarter. And I assume that process and that idea of engagement was what attracted someone like you to that, because you and I, over the now couple of years, we've known each other since the last presidential campaign. That seems like actually decades ago, or oh, like prehistoric <laughs> prehistoric history now, you know, depending on what how you look at what happened. But anyway, you like to, we like to give and take about that. So I assume that's what personally attracted you to that process. That's that's exactly right. And it was also, I mean, you and I were on many panels together on CNN during the presidential campaign period where, you know, there were eight people on the set and there were each person represented another set of ideas or candidates. And because of the nature of cable news and the nature of the news cycle that is, you know, 24 hours and, and packed with breaking news every second, Um, you actually never really get to have a really rigorous back and forth about anything other than horse race politics. You rarely do a deep dive into policy. You really do a deep dive into something that um, you can, you can really engage with an expert on and go back and forth on one topic, one person for an extended period of time. And that's why people have podcasts now because they're not getting their content on cable news to the extent that they want a deep dive on content that isn't just politics and horse race politics. If they really want to learn more about Janice, I'm sure they hear they turn on your podcast and get a progressive interpretation of, of you know, what the Supreme Court just did for, for labor unions um, or two labor unions, <laughs> depending on your, your perspective. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's the tradition that we're trying to return to television on public television. And that's, it is what attracted me to it because I didn't get to do that on TV. And I just felt like, Ugh, what are we doing? We're just doing horses politics. I'd rather talk about something more meaningful. Politics is important, but it's not, it doesn't make me feel like we're going to make the country better. And social media exacerbates that too, on top of cable television, because to your point before, social media, those who follow you or who you follow typically tends to reinforce people's biases and what they believe already. So it's just a, it's a very hard place to have a honest and kind of interesting discussion. It's so short and quick. Well, you, have to, you have to seek it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to seek it out. I mean, yeah. you can have your... I, I, I have lists. I don't know if you do this. I have lists of progressives, lists of, of you know, thoughtful right-wingers, thoughtful left-wingers, um, politicians, whatever. So I go to different lists to get different kinds of information. And it's vastly different because we're so fractured. Okay, so... Or fragmented, me, rather. Let me throw out this sort of broad um, 
concept or way of us getting into a little bit of policy discussion in our short time here. So there has been a lot of debate um, on all sorts of media about where the Republican Party is today. And there is a question about whether the Republican Party is representing conservative views and specifically, and I, I hope to mention this person's name only once in this podcast, whether the Republican Party is now Donald Trump's Republican Party. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of chuckled about that because if we put aside, and I'm curious about what you think about this, if we put aside Donald Trump's narcissism and his personal behavior in the way, at least I think, and I think a lot of people, Republicans think that he's just crazy and that he's deeply um, about himself. On the policy, one reason I think that Republicans are somewhat quiet or will at least not criticize him publicly on the stuff I just mentioned is that he's come through on the tax cuts, which are which is Republican ideology. Going back to Reagan, as you know, the tax mm-hmm. cuts going back mm-hmm. to Reagan, to Bush. Um, on climate change, he's very much within, from my point of view, the orthodoxy of climate change denial within the Republican Party. That's not across the board in the same way of the tax cuts as as I see it. But And then on certainly on deregulation or the way the government runs, he seems to be in lockstep with the party. Am I wrong about that? And am I, am I posing it in the right way from your view? I, I, you know, because you're a policy person and you're a thought guy, I think you sort of cut through the, the ambient noise really well. And I think that the conservative uh, infrastructure in Washington and around the country that has been in place really since um, the Reagan presidency uh, agrees with you. I mean, they and it, and it's it's also the the one you left out is Supreme Court nominees, and 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 the court, right? So it's the court, it's regulatory reform, it's climate change, it's tax cuts, it's guns, it's you know Second Amendment, um, and 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 more. But those are the big ones, and, and so I think you're right. I think they say the conservative movement's doing fine because look at all this stuff that we're getting done, and we would never have gotten this done if it were if it were up to Hillary. Now, I mean, there are. There are there are there are places where that falls flat, right? Because if you if you dig a little deeper in the tax cuts and you really look at how you know the, of the three major intellectual groups that Buckley put together in the '60s, right? One was economic libertarians, right? There was Hayek, and then Milton Friedman joined later, and and fiscal discipline, Art, Art Laffer, right? And while while the tax cuts, you know, hit hit one of those litmus tests, you know, there there was. <laughs> A, a resounding um, rallying cry around fiscal discipline, which which has completely been forgotten. Um, so, so I think that the the conservative apparatchiks or the conserv—I don't want to say apparatchiks is that you know <laughs> suggests lots of different things. <laughs> um, among them, uh, among them, there is reassertion re- re- of communism and right. There's, and, and well, Russia, there's, there's a negative. There's a negative connotation to that word. Yes. But but I I actually didn't mean to compliment. I mean, there are people who are part of the conservative infrastructure, and I don't always think favorably upon it, right? Because I don't think I think it's become sclerotic, and I think it has um, failed to come up with new ideas to meet the needs and the demands of uh, a modern economy. Um, And I think that's you know that's part of part of the reason that Donald Trump beat sixteen other seven fifteen other you know quote unquote conservative candidates is because he was actually speaking to um, the real sort of economic woes that that the quote unquote conservative establishment had had abdicated and had had failed to 
respond to or to or to um, to really listen to or, or to address the needs that they had, they had not addressed. And so uh, on the one hand, I think you're right. I think the conservative infrastructure and apparatus says he's doing fine. Conservatism's in great shape. On the other hand, um, there's some really key holes in that argument. Um, one of them is fiscal discipline. Another one of them is is, is how Trump is handling immigration um, that isn't consistent with, you know, Reaganism to the extent that Reaganism codified uh, conservatism as a, as a political movement. Um, so, uh, and, and I, you know, and I say so there, and there are plenty of people that came out of that tradition that, that this is why you have this quote unquote GOP civil war, or this conservative civil war. I mean, there are plenty who would argue that the conservative movement's done, it's dead. Um, and that, uh, you know, that sort of may, may have, what may, may have happened around the time that Buckley left this world in 2008. And part of the issue of, I think of conservatism whether it's libertarian or also the notion of not necessarily being adventurous abroad, there was always a debate about that too. Some conservatives said, yes, we should go out and be the cop of the world. And I'm being a a little bit um, general about that. Some conservatives said, no, we shouldn't do that. And I think you see some of that aspect, if you will, in the Rand Paul wing of the party and that Mm -hmm. debate. And I think it comes back to this fiscal discipline thing that we just talked about, because I actually am going to have on my next segment following you, a, a expert on taxes from the Institute of Taxation Economic Policy, because as you know, I, I'm a wonk a little bit. I like to read this stuff. And they just came out with a study looking at the effect of the tax cuts from 2001 to 2018, in other words, mostly the Bush and Trump tax cuts. And the, the thing that stood out to me, according to them, is that the national debt, which of course conservatism is really concerned about, to your point about fiscal d- discipline, it's at roughly 15 points. Or pretends to be. I'm going to, ah, I'm going to come to that. $15.7 trillion today. And two thirds of that comes from two things, the tax cuts, the Bush and Trump tax cuts, and basically America's wars since September 11th. And so you have these two things of these tax cuts and the money spent on wars that really accounts not it's not about Medicare and Social Security, in my opinion, and social spending. Two-thirds of it's on the tax cuts and the war. So I'm curious, what's happening about that conversation within the conservative movement from your point of view? Yeah, so I, I'm, so I'm glad you asked the question. Um, it, 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 as far as I can tell, and I'm, I'm kicking the tires here, yeah. I don't know for sure, but what I think has happened is that people are looking the other way. Like, nothing to see here, folks. Yikes. Nothing to see here, folks. Nobody's talking about. I just don't. I don't hear anybody talking about the debt. I don't hear anybody talking about the deficit. I don't hear anybody saying, "Hold on, we've forgotten our principles." And remember, principles were supposed to be important to us. Um, I, I don't. I don't see anybody doing it. And and on the and the flip side is, I see Paul Ryan leaving Congress. Um, and I see, you know, he was he was the. And by the way, deficit hawk wasn't considered a pejorative. You know, he was the proud deficit hawk. And um, to the extent that he's, you know, done anything in his last term, right? It's part of it is these tax cuts, which have increased the the debt and the deficit. Um, you know, part of it is the, you know, some of the things he still wants to get through Congress actually, um, you know, are includes spending on social programs that that I don't know that he would have structured in the way that he has if it weren't for an era of Donald Trump, where Donald Trump ran for the presidency, saying, "Yeah, I'm not going to touch Social Security." I'm not going to touch any of these. Now, from somebody from your perspective, I can see that that those are sort of welcomed responses. But from somebody who has argued his entire career in Washington, that 
eventually reforming Social Security uh, and Medicare and, and frankly, healthcare spending in the long term uh, is going to be a prerequisite to the nation's fiscal health. That's the argument he's made his entire time in Congress. Now he's leaving. So I, I think that that argument on the right has been overtaken by events, and that event is Donald Trump. And I, we can have a separate maybe podcast in Social Security and um, and healthcare because, of course, I see it completely differently in terms of where the yeah. problem is. Yeah, I know you do. And how you solve it. And <laughs> I actually remember you and I were on that CNN panel the night of the um, vote to repeal the skinny repeal, as they call it, the Affordable Care Act. We were on what's about one or two in the morning until John McCain came in and and gave the last vote. Turned his thumb down. Although, yeah. and I always remember actually. Susan Collins and Murkowski, the two women, by the way, women, didn't get the credit they deserved in terms of being part of that block, voting against it. They were the ones that really set it up for McCain to give that final vote. But let's let's not dive into that specifically. But I remember you saying, I was trying to talk about single payer, and you said, Jonathan, Bernie Sanders lost the election. I'll never forget that. And my point really was, when in that quick uh, rejoinder that we had, no, but that conversation about how to handle health care is, I think, really important. And I think that the Republican or conservative, and again, I'm making a broad generalization here, have one view of it, and progressives are trying to argue the opposite. Someone like Merkley, for example, that you had on would probably view it differently. Totally. And we talked about uh, Medicare for All today and, and the system that they have in Oregon. And um, and, and heaven forbid, Jonathan, you were trying to bring a, a, a long-form substantive debate to cable news <laughs> when all the action was about <laughs> was about John McCain right. turning his thumb down. Um, so, uh, but yes, we, we should do that podcast at a different time um, because there are obviously very different uh, different ideas about um, how to structure it, how to fund it, you know, what what systems deliver the highest form of healthcare for the you know the best price, and, and I, I do think we. We probably disagree about that, but I think we could probably, you know, I, I think you've probably heard all the arguments. I'm sure I'd learn something from you. And and um, and also, you know, I, I, I respect that exchange, that back and forth. And that's an important, it's an important routine to be in, in my view. And, and that's what we were trying to do on firing line as well. Mm-hmm. And so you set up um, a beautiful another example that I wanted to quickly get to, which is your point about why Donald Trump was successful in the Republican Party in terms of appealing to people out there in the hinterlands, if I, if you will, in the places that Hillary Clinton did so poorly. Number one, she didn't even bother to visit Wisconsin, but where she did not resonate. And that's not, and you talked about this with I can't remember whether, whether it was Kasich or or Ryan, the two segments that I listened to your from your program. That's about trade, and that's an interesting thing to me because there is a divide among. Um, and I'm going to I'm using this generally conservatives. I remember that when the NAFTA fight happened back in the 1990s, when Bill Clinton was the big pro free trader, and one reason I never voted for him was because of his support for NAFTA. There was a segment of Republicans, Michelle Laxalt, you probably who you probably know, and Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, who were totally against these trade agreements because they viewed yep. part of it was American sovereignty, but also they they were in some way somewhat 
and this is my description, mainstream. The harbinger's a pump, yeah. Or Exactly. And he was very effective in prosecuting, he being Trump, that case. And that went against the orthodoxy of the, the at least the more recent orthodoxy of the Republican Party. Um, Bill Clinton, for example, and Barack Obama needed Republican votes consistently to pass these trade agreements. So don't you find that quite fascinating as, as, a, as a point of, um, debate within your part within the conservative movement. Well, that's where yes, I do. I mean, the fault lines in. I mean, that's why I generally I find where the fault lines in conservatism are, but also the fault lines in the progressive left. I there are and there are fault lines, right? Like there's this question. I don't want to you know pivot, but there there are fault lines on both. Certainly, trade is one of them, and 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 has always been right. And that's probably one I ought to have mentioned when I mentioned taxes and I mentioned immigration. Um, trade was the other glaring omission that, you know, re- Republicans since, um, I mean, it, it actually, that's really just been a tenant of the modern conservative movement was um, free trade. I mean, it, it, it just it just was. I mean, that's that was Milton Friedman. That was Hayek. That was all of the, the scholars, the academics, the Nobel laureates, the economists that, that align themselves with the modern American conservative movement. They were free traders. Um, but there was this strain of conservatism that was Really, I think typified by by Pat Buchanan and and some of his ilk that were uh, more Southern populist in their sort of pedigree or their their heritage, their tradition. That um, that actually sort of harkens back to Andrew Jackson and forward to Trump, and and that it is a clear. Um, I think it is a pretty consistent consistent strain. Of um, you know economic populism in American politics and American history, um, but that is sort of the you know it's it's it, it is what Trump appealed to in the Republican base, right? It was is white working class non college educated voters who had been forgotten by the establishment in their party, and what he tapped into, I think. And I, I wrote a couple of pieces about this saying that the Democratic Party was in great danger and Hillary Clinton specifically if they did not clearly come out against these trade deals. Hillary Clinton had a problem uh, trying to do that because she was always for them, obviously. But he was making great hay on this, and especially because – First of all, in my view, there is no such thing as free trade, at least the way David Ricardo envisioned it in the, in the 19th century. But basically, this was about setting up the rules of global trade. We're everybody's for tra- yeah. everybody's for trade. The real debate is about right. what the rules are, right. and what Trump was able to do quite effectively, I think, is to say. And I, of course, this is a joke because he himself is a billionaire and defrauded thousands of people he wouldn't pay. But that, so it was kind of funny that he was setting himself up as the Who defender of the benefited person. by the global rules of yes, trade ex- that you decry. Absolutely. And he was able to basically, in a, in a disingenuous way, say to people, they're against you. They set up these rules. They forgot you, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. But, but all the while enriching himself on those rules, because every tie he owns and wears was made in China, and every you know every was sort of all of it you know his <laughs> from his immigrations and his workers and his employees to you know the steel he used in you know in his bill. I mean he's um, he has benefited from those rules of trade that he decried. Um, so that's the the ultimate hypocrisy that that uh, never resonated or or maybe was even put forth. I think it was put forth, but it didn't matter. Um, 
and and so that's where we are. And so to my final question would be, I, I promised I actually would not use his name more than once, but I did in trying to ex, trying to get a discussion about conservatism. Who are the, from your point of view as a conservative, who are the people that you are looking to, you know, yourself as a commentator, yourself with this important program that you're looking to in the conservative movement that you feel are, if you will, genuine and honest in the way that I look at Jeff Merkley as someone who's speaking honesty from our point of view? <sighs> Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I that's part of the process of this program is I get to I get to talk to a lot of people and I identify really where it is. I mean, I, I, you know, I think Jeff Flake, I think John McCain, I think you know, it's, it, look, the conservative movement it, it is not a purist or a litmus test kind of movement. I think there are politicians and there are electeds whose ideas and policies I like, but I don't know, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that the conservative movement. Um, there certainly is the residue of a movement left over that is still funded and supplied and has the think tanks and the publications and the political, um, you know, uh, worker bees as part of it. But I, I don't know if there is like this coherent conservative movement, um, as there was really, you know, in the, I'd say 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, around the time that sort of Buckley helped bring it to political fruition, frankly, with the um, sort of culminating in the election of Ronald Reagan. Um, I, I don't think that exists. Um, so there are people that I like, right? There are people I like Carlos Cabello. He's a um, Cuban-American congressman in Miami. I think he is authentic. I think he's real. I think he, um, I agree with where he is on, you know, LGBT freedom and climate change, <laughs> for example, um, which is that he believes in climate change and is trying to find sort of, you know, solutions that um, you know, maybe, maybe fit. He's trying to find creative solutions for climate change uh, that might be a little different than the progressive solutions for climate change, but he's, but he's, he's not a denier and he's, he's working on it. I mean, he lives in Miami. He's in a, he's in a constituency that's, you know, losing ground to water. It's, it's hard to deny. Um, and, uh, who else is good? You know, there are some, you're so there are some sort of dissenting voices on the right that I really like, um, each for different reasons, but there aren't a lot of them. I mean, that's, that's the truth of it. This is sort of a movement that's in retreat, um, who, that has still has money behind it and funding behind it and, and infrastructure behind it. But, um, but I think it's, it's, kind of it's going to need to reorganize if it's going to continue to sort of be relevant and i don't i don't see it as enormously relevant anymore or at least in this moment and what's amazing about that to me when you just said that is essentially the republican party which supposedly is supposed to represent the conservative movement controls all the branches of government the supreme court the presidency at least the congress at least till through the november 2018 elections and at the state level the democrats have been eviscerated in legislature after legislature something like 900 seats have been lost since obama uh, came into the white house two republicans so you would think this would be a moment of ascendancy of the conservative and I can hear you say right, or, or I, I, it's sort of a culmination of a lot of work over a lot of years. By the way, I mean the term conservative too also implies all these social conservatives, and I'm you know I'm not a, I'm not particularly a social conservative, right? But this is another strain of the movement. This is another sort of faction um, of the movement, tributary to the massive river or whatever you want to call it. That but so so they're all sort of at odds with each other. You know, it's like a you know it's a tribal warfare in a way. Um, so you're right. It, this is why it isn't univocal, and it, at the time of 
what what one would think should be maximum political leverage, um, it, it's at least it hasn't been able to assert itself as uniformly as one would have thought. But what's, what's ended up happening is the party is Trumpified. And to the extent that anything's getting done, it's really getting done through the power of, of the presidency and Donald Trump. And for as terrifying as that might sound to, to your listeners and uh, and distasteful and, frankly, uncomfortable it is, as it is for me, um, I don't particularly like it. Um, he He has an enormous amount of political power. And when he is able to wield it effectively, uh, you know, people who think like I do in politics don't survive it politically. Very rarely, very rarely, because the Republican base is with him, um, more so now than almost ever uh, since, he's, since his election. So that's the truth of the matter. I've devoted a lot of time in the podcast over the past many months to taxes, to the crazy debate about tax cuts especially. And here's an eye-opening number, which I started to talk about in the introduction to this program. The national debt, and that's the sum total of the annual deficits that we have each year, is $15.7 trillion. Now, that's a big number to be sure, and I will say first, that kind of big number is mostly used to create hysteria about government spending. And what I mean by creating hysteria is that actually even that size debt is completely manageable over the course of many, many years. It's not in line with rational thinking, and it's more a piece of political rhetoric, mostly by Republicans, but also by some Democrats to get people all stirred up and beating the drum to cut government spending because, oh my God, we have this big national debt. What's really important to know is this. That debt is principally not about social programs. Medicare or anything else. I want to say that again. The $15.7 trillion, that debt, is not about social programs. Two-thirds, two-thirds of the entire national debt, and I want you to remember this, two-thirds of the entire national debt comes from two decisions made since 2000. The Bush-Trump tax cuts, which shoveled billions of dollars to the wealthy and corporations and robbed the treasury of this country, and all the military adventurism that this country has embarked on since September 11, 2001. Again, let's understand this. If the greedy elites and their political servants had not decided to rob the federal treasury and grab as much as they could from our tax money, that's the dues we pay to have a decent society, and if we had spent the last close to two decades not at war, which was a continuation of a war started by the impeachable lies, real impeachable lies of Bush and Cheney, 
and also funded, those wars funded by Congress, Democrats and Republicans. If those things had not happened, we would have a national debt two-thirds lower. So ponder that for a few minutes. And then listen in as I bring in Matt Gardner, the senior fellow at the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. And as my regular listeners know, Matt has been a regular guest on the podcast and a great explainer of all things tax-related. And he joins me now to talk about the statistics I just mentioned as part of a just-released study that he co-authored that looks at the effect of tax cuts going back to 2000. Before we actually get to the numbers, and uh, I love reading your stuff, it feels like, as Yogi Berra used to say, deja vu all over again. And in a certain way, what you're talking about here, and I talked a little bit about this in my introduction, and we're going to dig into the numbers. This isn't shocking, actually, because you specifically and others at ITEP have pointed this out for years, and it just seems to kind of go over their heads or it's dismissed or they just don't care, meaning the Republicans in particular who pass these tax cuts. That's right. Uh, I think for each of the big tax changes that have been enacted in the last 20 years, and you know, Trump and, and Bush are the two that really dominate things, uh, we've had similar findings. Almost anyone would think about each of these tax cuts. Well, sure, the benefits go primarily to the best off uh, Americans. So on one level, it's not news at all. But I think nobody's really taken a step back to ask, you know, systematically, we really have fundamentally changed the way our federal tax systems works in the last 20 years without really thinking we were doing it. And, you know, when we stand back, what do we see? And what we see is a pretty ugly picture. And so, okay, let's dig right into that. Give us the, if you will, the top level talking points or the analysis of how it's changed and what we've seen. Um, well, there's two ways of thinking about it. One is revenue loss and the other is tax fairness. From a fairness perspective, what we know is that tax cuts enacted in the 21st century so far have gone overwhelmingly to the best off Americans. Two thirds of all the tax cuts since 2000 are going to the best off fifth, 20% of Americans. I'm, Just sho 1%. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm oh, sitting, right. I'm sitting <laughs> down here. Heard this before, right? <laughs> like, well, this is, this is breaking news. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And at the other end of the spectrum, the poorest 20% of Americans have netted about 3% of all these tax cuts over the last 20 years. The price of this has been $5.1 trillion over the last, uh, over this period since 2000. So this is a pretty huge bill. Um, and the benefits for the low-income families and the middle-income families uh, whose public services are being endangered by these tax cuts have been pretty trivial. And let me connect something to, to what you just said to something that I just read and picked up, and I'm sure you've seen this yourself. One of the arguments that has been made by the conservatives, I've debated Stephen Moore on CNN about this, is that, oh, well, if you give all these massive tax cuts, even if they are going to the rich and if they're going to corporate tax cuts specifically, it's going to then show up in higher wages for regular workers. And in fact, well, we all knew that was completely a lie, but we're now seeing the actual data 
that actually most of the money that's been given to corporations and the corporate tax cuts has gone to share buybacks. And in fact, at the same time, wages for regular people are going down, even though corporate profits are up, right? That's exactly right. And you've just mentioned two, I think, of the three big lies that propelled the Trump tax cuts. One is that workers would benefit. Uh, Another is that corporations would reinvest their tax savings in productive ways, including but not limited to workers. And a third would be that the tax, the cost of the tax cuts would be largely imaginary. That would be made up by economic growth. We now know from the preliminary signs anyway, that none of these promises uh, appear to be fulfilled. In fact, our deficits are getting worse. Wages are still stagnating. Uh, And corporations are, as you mentioned, engaging primarily in share buybacks, things that really don't benefit the U.S. economy or U.S. workers at all. And what share buybacks do benefit, and I've made this point on this program many, many times, is really CEOs at these companies because what share buybacks do typically is they boost the share price of corporations. And most of the compensation that CEOs get, the big, big numbers that we see is not in their daily paycheck, although their daily paycheck is something that everyone would aspire to, but their big, huge robbery, the money they really get is in all sorts of money that's tied to the share price and stock options they get. So they are really benefiting directly personally in terms of their own money in their pockets when they're buying those shares back using this money that was basically netted through the tax cuts. That's right. And as you've hinted, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody either. There were certainly signals of this kind before the tax cuts got passed. And from a macro perspective, you know, just a year ago, everybody was saying, every economist anyway, was saying, this is nuts. Why, if you if you enact a tax cut at this point in the business cycle, you're not going to get what you want. Uh, we have a long history as a nation at the federal level of making federal tax policy a counter-cyclical thing. We cut taxes or raise spending when the economy is going down the tubes, when, when, when deficit spending and tax reductions could actually help boost things on the margin. We don't do these things when the economy is going nearly at capacity, as it is right now, uh, because when you do so, businesses have there's nothing else they really want to invest in right now. And so all they're going to think about sensibly, I guess, is themselves, is the share buybacks. So it's not surprising. And, and it just highlights that there's something, you know, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, deja vu all over again. But there is something fundamentally different about this new tax cut compared to what we've done before. Uh, it's the first time in living memory that we've enacted a huge tax cut at or near the peak of an economic cycle when the economy was already going gangbusters. It sort of defies economic logic in that sense. Because typically people say, oh, well, a policymaker say, let's cut taxes in order to give the economy a boost when it's in recession or depression. In fact, one of the things that happened during the Obama administration is somewhat of tax cuts, but also the stimulus package came at the time that the economy had collapsed. And your point is that that wasn't the case in, in during the Trump tax cuts debate. That's exactly right. In in after 2008, when President Obama came in, you know he he pushed through some tax cuts at the bottom end, payroll tax reductions, and the explicit goal 
was to get the economy moving again. And it made some sense at that time. Even then, there was this balance between uh, boosting the economy and more deficit spending that would have been worrisome over the long haul. But everyone was willing to tolerate those tax cuts at the time because they were targeted to workers and because they were designed to boost the economy. Uh, these tax cuts are enacted at a point where that incentive simply can't help and, and the tax cuts aren't even being sent to workers uh, to begin with. So it's it just flies in the face of the conventional wisdom of when you do tax cuts that's evolved over the last quarter century. And to put it in regular language, the theory is that when you cut taxes for lower income people, they use that money to go out and actually buy stuff at the store. They have to buy groceries. Whereas how many um, yachts and mansions can the elite, the top 1% buy with their tax cuts? You already own five mansions or two Gulfstream jets, you're not necessarily going to go out and buy a new one. And that doesn't do much for the stimulus, stimulating the economy. And obviously, their numbers are smaller too. One of the things that I, I've got all your charts spread out here on my table, you can't see this, but and I encourage my listeners to go and to itep.org and read the study and, and generally subscribe to what ITEP sends out in the email blast because the information is really terrific. One of the things that really jumped out at me actually is the estate tax chart. And the reason it jumped out at me is that perhaps is one of the most egregious examples of the robbery um, that the rich basically engaged in in this tax cut. Because when you look at that chart, in some of the other charts, there are all sorts of numbers that say, okay, here's how much people are getting or not getting. But in this chart, there's basically dashes. It's empty for everybody, but the top, mostly for the top 1%. And the reason for that is, that, as you well know, there was already an exemption of the estate tax for everybody but the very, very rich, up to I think it was $9 million per couple, if I remember correctly, or somewhere in that range. And yet here we, here we had this estate tax that will, by the year uh, 2025, it actually, you actually measure it from the Bush tax cut. So over a quarter century, essentially, the top 1% will walk away with $838 billion. That's three quarters, over three quarters of a trillion dollars in money that was just handed to them that no other segment of the population, including even the if you look at the chart, the the top, the next, the top five percent. This is really targeted to the ultra wealthy. That's right, um, and that's another one of the really excellent exercises in uh, mind control, I guess, and spin that the Republican, Republican leadership has pushed over the last twenty years, convincing Americans that the estate tax was a danger to them personally and that it affected the middle income. What we know right now, based on the latest data, is that about two-tenths of 1% of all estates pay even a penny of estate taxes. Uh, this is true before the Trump tax cuts took effect, and it's only getting uh, smaller now. So we will get to the point where the tax will not be worth collecting. Uh, and I think that's probably what Congress is counting on. You know, there's been uh, uh, there's been this reticence to uh, repeal the tax outright because the cost is so great. Um, but the thought, I guess, is that if you keep chipping away at it, um, you can, while simultaneously demonizing it, as Congress has endlessly since the 90s, uh, you can eventually quietly, indirectly 
uh, repeal it. And that would be a real loss to the fairness of our tax system because, as you mentioned, the estate tax, more than almost any tax we have, is directly targeted toward the very best off Americans. And it's targeted towards preventing tax avoidance uh, because right now, uh, without the estate tax, there's a ton of capital gains, uh, assets held until death, that would go completely untaxed. Uh, the estate tax is a, is, a, is actually a backstop to make sure that a lot of this high-end capital gains income gets taxed at least once, uh, which uh, it flies in the face of the, the double taxation argument you hear a lot about the estate tax. In fact, the estate tax is necessary to make sure that a lot of income is taxed just once, and that's income that's really only going to the very best off Americans. So it would be uh, it's a big hole in our tax system when this state tax is not functionally properly. Yeah, it's almost, as I said, a trillion dollars. It's uh, three over three quarters of a billion dollars. And it is literally just several thousand families. It, it affects the very, very ultra, ultra wealthy, the, the very elites. The, the last thing as we wrap up that I, the, the, the great sentence that you had here in the study, which I think really goes to the whole Republican Party ideology as a fraud, um, you well know that the Republican Party does two things. It runs around many of its members talking about, oh, the threat uh, that the country faces from the growing national debt. And the second thing they say, this is really because of the explosion of so-called entitlements, Medicare, Social Security, social spending. But actually, what you write in one sentence, just completely, actually in two sentences, and I'm going to read them and ask you to react to this, really just blows that up and is so um, clear. And this is what you guys wrote. The national debt today stands at $15.7 trillion. Two decisions made since 2000. Tax cuts, meaning the Bush tax cuts, and now I'm, these are my words, the Bush tax cuts and the Trump tax cuts, and then I'm continuing with what you guys wrote, and America's wars since September 11, 2001, together account for roughly two-thirds of that amount. So... Talk a little bit about that. That's those two sentences to me just were just blew me away. Right. Well, um, we've always known. I think policy analysts have always have always known that if you listen to the language, the rhetoric that Republican leaders use about budget balancing, you know, they're talking about welfare. They're talking about entitlements. They're talking about programs that go to the undeserving poor. And it's always been the case that the areas of spending that they're pointing at when we say we can we can fix this, we can we can balance the budget, are areas that just don't cost that much. We don't spend that much on uh, as a nation on items that benefit low income families. The far more important numerically is spending that benefits everybody and 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 these tax cuts. So, and, and in fact, uh, you know, there have been countless comparisons of uh, how much more we're spending just paying off interest on the national debt as a result of these tax cuts and specific policy areas. You know, so, so uh, yeah, I mean, there's you can you can talk all you want about fraud, waste, and abuse, and about uh, entitlement spending, but the hard fact is that these things simply cannot be eliminating these things even if it was a humane thing to do or a thing that anyone would agree on, simply cannot be the mechanism 
for balancing the budget at a time when you're simultaneously spending far more cutting taxes on the high end and engaging in military spending abroad. These are much bigger items. And military spending that's not paid for in a sense. I mean, you can put aside for a, for a moment the idiocy of these wars and the way in which it creates hostility towards the United States because we're bombing people around the world. That's a that's another decision. But just on the economics of it, these, these wars and the tax cuts are, as you point out, account for two-thirds of the national debt. And to just give a number to what you said about the interest payments, if you took up till 2025, and this is coming from what you guys wrote, going back to 2001 to 2025, if you just took the tax cuts, that was $10.6 trillion. And, but then adding on the interest payments adds roughly three, $3 trillion more. So just on the interest payments alone, and those are interest payments that the average taxpayer foots, essentially we're um, increasing that debt by a third. Exactly. And, you know, that, another way of describing that is that, uh, you know, that $3 trillion, that, that's, the, that's the long-term price of our short-term profligacy. You know, the, the, our unwillingness to, to pay for what we buy right now, we're putting it on the credit card for the next generation and the generation after that. The, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty unconscionable. The, uh, Im- the really important thing is that, um, you know, people need to understand that there is no free lunch. And, and I think part of the reason that we've gotten to the place we've gotten that's documented in this report with wave after wave of irresponsible, expensive, high-end tax cuts is that we have been told by our elected officials that there is a free lunch, that we can enact these huge tax cuts and they'll pay for themselves, that they won't blow up the deficit, that they won't endanger our ability to fund important services in the long haul. When American leaders look you in the eye and say these things, it's it's very easy for people to believe them. But the fact is that it hasn't worked out that way. There has not been a tax cut in the last 20 years that has paid for itself in, in living memory that has paid for itself or has even come close. And what this report shows above all is that there has been no, virtually no benefit for many Americans from these tax cuts, that the trillions and trillions of dollars that uh, has been, uh, the trillions and trillions of dollars in new uh, federal debt has had virtually no benefit for low-income families. Now it's time for our Robber Baron of the Week, and our Robber Baron of the Week is, once again, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. It's never really repetitive or unimportant to use Bezos as a Robber Baron. He could really keep that crown in perpetuity. Maybe we should do that. But I choose him again this week for two reasons. First, he has now become the richest person in all of recorded time, going back to the caveman, with a net worth of $152 billion. Just this year alone, 
his net worth rose $52 billion, which is more than the annual gross domestic product of more than 100 countries. And just this week, and this was the second reason that I chose Bezos again as the robber baron this week, just this week, workers throughout the world engaged in a boycott and workplace action against Amazon on the company's Prime Day, which probably many of you are aware of, which offers discounts over 36 hours and has become a bigger shopping day for capitalism than the infamous Black Friday. In Spain, 1,800 workers walked off the job on Monday, a couple of days ago, in an action that's actually scheduled to continue through today. Yesterday, thousands of workers from Amazon warehouses in Germany walked out. Workers in France, Poland, Italy, and England are also taking part. And the effort is targeting Amazon for a whole host of reasons. German workers have been fighting the company for two years, seeking a collective bargaining agreement. In Italy, the company is hiring large numbers of contract workers who don't get benefits. Workers in England and France are facing outrageous speed-up demands, forcing them to process 300 items an hour. And because of that speed, they have to pee in bottles so they don't leave the assembly line and they're being penalized for taking sick days and time off during pregnancies. And so Bezos now becomes the 21st century wealth king on the back of working conditions that harken back to the 19th and 20th century sweatshops. And that's why Jeff Bezos again is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Margaret Hoover, the new host of Firing Line, and Matt Gardner from ITEP. You can visit ITEP at ITEP.org. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our other sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. I also want to thank our individual sponsors, those of you who are giving small amounts through Patreon. Please do go over to workinglife.org and join that group of people who are already sponsors. We'd love to have you as not just a subscriber, but a supporter. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.